0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Petit of the Royal Historical Society and I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Peter Heather. Professor Heather is Chair of Medieval History at King's College London. He is one of the leading historians of the late Roman Empire and the of the ancient world. And today we're discussing his latest book, Christendom, The Triumph of a Religion, AD 300 to 1300. Welcome, Professor Heather. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Professor,
1: why did you write this book? I, I wrote it um, as a result, you know, I, I teach Christian things, um, throughout uh my career you know so you know i'm now in my early 60s i've been teaching for 30 odd years and (laughs) i felt certain um uh hesitations about some of the ways in which christianity was was being taught um that sometimes it's presented as an a unproblematic thing. We know what Christianity is. It's always the same thing. You don't have to discuss what it is. Um, And also, I think some of the contexts in which Christian conversion were were being recorded as taking place, these weren't being probed enough. And and a combination of those two things made me want to stop and take a look at the process, um, particularly over the long term. Um, The other thing that happens... Uh, with particularly at university level, where you have periodizations and different departments, ancient history being in a different department from medieval history, um, is that the story gets broken up into fragments. And I wanted to put everything together and uh, think about it um, in the light of the the sort of uh, elements of the story that I felt weren't being fully discussed at the moment.
0: Would it be true to say that uh, you do not care very much for Christianity or as a religion? Um, I'm not a believer.
1: Uh, I had my Church of England religious phase when I was a teenager. Um, I wouldn't say that I don't care for it exactly. Um, I've never been blessed or whatever the right word would be with uh, or at least not since that phase, I've not had a kind of uh, deep Christian faith. I still really like going to church, actually, um, in not very often, but occasionally. And I find some very profound truths in some of its teachings. Uh, I think the uh, Easter message, uh, that there's hope often in the very darkest of places, that's so true to human experience. Um, I've found a great deal of uh, comfort and inspiration in that over the years. Um, and uh, since I've had children, I've rediscovered a love for Christmas, I confess, uh, as a great time. But if you mean that I don't have a, a, a deep personal faith, that, that's entirely correct. But uh, I love a lot of the teachings, love a lot of the messages. So um, sort of half and half on that one, I think.
0: Why do you not employ the terms... Unless I unless I missed it late antiquity in the book, I don't. Gosh, that's interesting. Uh, you
1: you're probably right. Um, I I probably am more interested. In This is one of the problems I have with the current writing on it, I suppose, in a way, uh, in the sense that uh, the last generation or so, uh, particularly under that late antique umbrella, has divorced cultural historical matters from um, other historical matters, um, not least the sort of uh, history of the Roman imperial system. And I suppose that the sort of underlying theme of the first third of the book is that the history of Christianity in the period between, say, 300 and 700 can't be properly understood unless you put it, uh, throw into the equation the fact that it does become the official religion of this Roman imperial system, that the process of, of making it so Uh, not only changes the Roman Empire, but more profoundly changes Christianity as well. So, uh, as it were, uh, putting religion back in the context of all the other types of history that that relate to the uh, flourishing and unravelling of the Roman imperial system seems to me um, extremely important, rather than uh, having the idea that Uh, Christianity is a cultural construct that functions completely outside of the sort of uh, political economic structures of the Roman world um, which I I don't believe to be correct so um, I didn't deliberately not use the term late antiquity but as it were I am very focused in that part of the book in Putting Christianity much more firmly into the Roman imperial context, because I think that tells you some very, or some very important things about Christianity in the way that it's being changed don't make any sense if you don't.
0: Isn't that the non-usage of the term antiquity part and parcel of your disagreement with Peter Brown in terms of the issue of continuity versus discontinuity? I I don't think
1: it's about. Continuity exactly. <clears throat> to my mind, it's about the relationship between culture and power and between uh, cultural structures and political structures. Um, Peter Brown taught everybody who taught me in Oxford. Um, when I first met him, I said, you know, I'm sort of your intellectual grandchild, and we both laughed about it because uh, I am. Uh, but the main distinction that I would see, uh, the main difference in emphasis, uh, is uh, he wants to um, and argues very uh, cogently and with great vigour that the, um, the history of the period 300 to 800 has been bent out of shape by talking about the rise and fall of the Roman system and by not focusing on cultural matters within which there's much greater continuity, et cetera, et cetera, and that, uh, as it were, the traditional uh, emphasis on the decline of Rome as a bad thing, inaugurating the Dark Ages, that that's mistaken. There's quite a lot of that that I actually agree with. Um, you know, rise and fall of systems are rise and fall of systems. They're not inherently good or bad in my um, opinion, you know, the things that happen within human society. And uh, I was very uh, much cheered by the response to the book I wrote about um, the fall of the Roman Empire, where sort of half of the responders, if you look on Amazon, um, I haven't looked for a while, so I might be slightly out of date in my uh, l- numbers, yeah. but it was about 50-50 who thought I was on the side of the Romans or on the side of the barbarians. The answer is I'm not on anybody's side. I, I don't think it's either a good or a bad thing, but it's a thing. And where I think I really disagree um, or would argue an alternative case to what Peter Brown has been uh, the sort of underlying emphasis of, of his writing over the years is in suggesting that you can write the history of big cultural structures like Christianity, uh, apart from the history of the Roman imperial system, because uh, the case I'm making uh, in the first third of the book, uh, or trying to make, and of course, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, we'll see what readers make of it, Uh, is that the the particular transformations that happen uh, within Christianity, both in the fourth and fifth century and then in the later 5th, 6th, and 7th century, are tied so closely to the rise and fall of the Roman system that you have to see it in that context, that the Roman Empire becomes what our early modern historical colleagues would call a confessional state. It is a Christian state. It nails its ideological flag to uh, the mast of Christianity, if you like, um, and Christianity Uh, is absorbed into the imperial structures um, in administrative ways, in educational ways, uh, in terms even of how religious authority is articulated and deployed, uh, so that when that Roman system unravels, as it does in the western half of the Mediterranean um, in the fifth century, this has some very profound effects upon Christianity. Um, So, I mean, Peter Brown has noticed uh, and emphasized that uh, we get the phenomenon of what he calls Christian microcosms in the post-Roman West, where you've got Christian communities that are in a little bit of contact with one another, regional-based Christian communities in Francia or Gaul or um, north of the Channel, but no overarching authority structure, nothing binding them together. Uh, I totally agree with him on on that observation, but I would articulate and explain it in a slightly different way, and that is that the unity... Uh, the unitary authority of centralized Christianity in the Roman period is provided by the fact that the emperor provides overarching religious authority and is recognized as having the right to do so, particularly uh, in the right to call these huge ecumenical councils, which make all the really authoritative decisions. And that when you remove the, the office and the person of emperor from the system, then these regional Christian communities are left without a head. And in fact, the kind of authority that uh, emperors had exercised in the late Roman period then gets exercised by successor state kings. Uh, So again, it's kind of political uh, structures that are uh, dictating much of the pattern that produces these Christian microcosms. And so to talk about them without talking about the political history and the way that... um, the rest of the sort of social and economic structures of the Roman world are evolving in the in the later Roman period, to me, it doesn't make so much sense.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in your introduction to the book, I read it as being uh, a sort of ad hominem uh, attack on uh, your predecessors in the sense that you seem to argue that since uh, I re- grew, grew up and uh, reside in a post-Christian world, I have a more discerning, I suppose, for lack of a better term to employ, uh, view of the historical background of this period, as opposed to, say, the Christopher Dawson's of 50, 100, 150 years ago, who were unduly influenced by the Christian aspect of the society in which they resided in.
1: I think we all write from... um the perspectives in which we're situated. I I tried to be a little more even handed than that. uh, And maybe I failed, but uh, I'm not, I think, trying to argue that um, the slightly non-religious or post-Christian perspective, if you like, that comes naturally to me living where I do and when I do uh, is more valid. Just that it is as valid, and that it's a dimension that hasn't um, worked its way into the scholarly literature sufficiently yet, uh, and particularly in the sense that um, the the sort of Christian the standard Christian narrative is one of um, unfolding success, if you like, um, that Christianity wins because it's a better religion and it's always going to win, and. Certainly, I mean, I know this is much less true in America, but in a European context, and it doesn't matter whether you're north or south of the Channel, but uh, across most of Europe, that's no longer true. Christianity has lost its kind of cultural uh, posi- yeah yeah exactly its position at the at the the centre of of cultural life. Uh, Lots of people still describe themselves as Christian, but they really mean Christian as opposed to anything else, and they don't go to church, they don't organise their lives around the sort of great Christian festivals. Uh, A Christian faith is not at the heart of their existence and their worldview. Um, And I think this opens uh, or makes me more aware of the possibility that, you know, given that we know that Christianity can lose because it has lost in this wide European context over the last 100, 120 years, that it might not have been successful in the past. So that's really all I'm um, trying to claim, or that's the sort of line of emphasis that I'm uh, interested in uh, bringing more to the intellectual table, as it were, uh, a sort of a greater openness to the fact that we shouldn't take the success of Christianity for granted. Um the, the fact that it's uh, not done so well in the European context more recently, uh, just then makes you think about the other moments uh, when it might not have done so well in the past.
0: I suppose sir, you could say that what you're endeavouring to do is bring contingency back to the narrative of the. Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. Uh, that I think there are probably two watchwords: contingency is. Um, certainly one of the two that I would put a lot of emphasis on Uh, and the other one is the 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 other point that emerges from taking Christianity over the over the very long time frame that I do is just how and I think it's closely related to the contingency is just how much Christianity changed over the centuries Uh, and it changes um, to accommodate new societies new belief systems and also to function in different ways uh, and to become a mass religion and an organized religion. Um, so uh, in a sense, I suppose that's my biggest problem with just the use of the word Christianity. Uh, it's a it's a misleading singular noun. It can make you think of this thing and make you think that it's always been the same. Well, yes, there are some continuities uh, in Christianity from as early as we have the earliest texts. So We know that um, already by the time the the epistles are being written, that they're thinking of Christ somehow as God and man, and that Christ's life and death is central to the salvation of human beings. That's a key central idea that's there from uh, the earliest documented time. There are lots of other ways in which... Uh, Christianity has changed uh, very profoundly, you know, from uh, being a a small sect-type religion for very, very devout believers only, or turning into a mass religion, uh, the kind of uh, administrative um, authority structures that have to change, belief structures even have to change, to accommodate that transformation, uh, and thinking about how uh, as the context changes around it and different groups of uh, European populations are brought to a Christian allegiance, um, then uh, you see Christianity adapting to those groups over time.
0: Why did Constantine the Great convert to Christianity? And when would you hazard a guess did he do so? He, it's, that's, I think, one of the most fun questions. and it's
1: kind of why I, I started Uh, with him. Um, The only thing I think you can be absolutely certain of is that you can't believe a word he said about it. (laughs) Um, uh, The evidence, uh, it's not transmitted firsthand, it's transmitted secondhand through various people who met him, uh, is contradictory. Uh, And if you uh, line up the public religious stance of his regime, the pattern that becomes clear uh, is that he inches his way towards Christianity, but only after every major political victory that he wins over the rivals that he faces. When he comes to power, he's one amongst, uh, I think it's seven or eight emperors. Uh, and uh, over time, we get this kind of Darwinian struggle. But this is the, the post-Diocletianic, Tetrarchic sort out in Roman politics. Um, and between 306, and 324, the others are winnowed out until Constantine emerges triumphant as the sole emperor of the sole emperor left standing from this brutal struggle. And it's only in 324 that he um, unambiguously declares his Christianity to the entirety of the empire. And of course, that's the moment when it's politically safe to do so. Uh, And the pattern is that uh, the intermediate stages that markers a shift in regime religious policy are all inaugurated by great military victory. So that's the same, that's like declaring um, a difficult policy immediately after you win a huge general election victory in the modern world, uh, but doing it afterwards, not beforehand. You don't tell people the awkward thing about you before the election. You wait until you've got the validation of victory before you say it. And in the Roman world, The validation of victory was even stronger because they believed that the divinity, uh, of whichever persuasion you chose to uh, think the divinity was, that the divinity intervened directly in the running of the Roman world. So military victory came from God, the gods, whichever God you believed in, um, so that there is a huge legitimation. Uh, that's brought to any victor from civil wars and especially a victor from multiple civil wars like Constantine he's completely untouchable in 324. My own suspicion uh, I'm not alone in this uh, is that Constantine may have been uh, a personal Christian believer from very early on um, and that there was Christianity within his family. Uh, that's based on hints rather than explicit information, uh, but it makes kind of sense, I think. So, uh, in other words, what he tells us is the story of his conversion uh, uh, via these intermediaries, is much more a story of him coming out as a Christian when it's politically safe for him to do so. Because at the moment that he comes to power, the rest of the Roman world is still persecuting Christians. And to have declared a Christian allegiance at that point would have been to invite every other contender for power to unite against him. So that was a completely dangerous thing to do.
0: How popular slash widespread was Christianity in 312 at the time of Constantine's toleration he did?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, that one. And it's a very important question. Um, you can only do ballpark, estimates um there's one fairly popular one which suggests that it's already quite popular in the 10 to 20 percent bracket um that i think is completely impossible when you kind of do the ballpark calculations in the sense that we know that christianity is largely an urban phenomenon and maybe only 10 percent of the roman population um lived in towns but we also know that only about one third of the towns of the empire had an organized christian community with a bishop at that point so that takes you from 10 percent down to more like three percent and actually there's no city of the empire in 312 where christians were the majority um, antioch is the oldest continuous uh, christian community of them all um, the community in Jerusalem was disrupted by the Jewish revolts and the expulsion of the Jews uh, against Roman rule um, in the early second century. So Antioch is the oldest Christian community of them all. But um, even by about 360 or 370, after the empire has been formally Christian for a generation or two, Christians are a large chunk of the Antiochian population, but they're not the majority even then. So. You know, you, you do those ballpark figures, you add in a bit more because we know there are some uh, more rural Christian populations in um, Egypt uh, and in uh, North Africa in particular, also little bits of Asia Minor. But, uh, you know, you go from 10 percent maximum, 3 uh, percent because it's only a third uh, cut down the 3% because it's not a majority in any of those cities where there is an organized Christian community. Add a bit back in for rural world. I don't see how you get Christian numbers more than about one and a half, two percent 2% of the imperial population at the absolute maximum. So it's still very small,
0: I think. Uh, perhaps I misread you, but I got the impression that... Um you were asserting that in terms of Christianity prior to 312, that it was sort of open-minded about theological disputes. And once it once it became uh, connected with the Roman state, much less so. Isn't that a little bit reductionist? Uh,
1: I don't think so. Um, I would see it this way. Uh, this is, I, I suppose, what I was trying to say, uh, uh, that um, the... The Christian world before 312 is largely composed of um, autonomous local communities that run themselves with very loose authority structures. There isn't uh, a mechanism, Uh, and in fact, the the hostility of the Roman state would have made it impossible for there to be a mechanism for um, Christians to meet together and resolve complex issues. Um, We know that they are excluding certain points of view as unacceptable, but the kind of things they're doing are are making, as it were, negative statements. So this is not compatible with Christianity. What they don't try and do before um, the time of Constantine uh, is produce a strong, closely defined, positive assertion of what Christian belief should be. And obviously, the centrally, the most interesting thing about Christianity in theological terms is the mixture of the divine and the human in Christ. So, an awful lot of the dispute in early Christianity, pre and post Constantine, is revolving on the figure of Christ and what exactly does it mean to have God and man in the same person. But what you see after uh, Constantine, well, really from the Council of Nicaea onwards, is that you start to see. Uh, a more positive uh, need, feeling, determination, to produce a very tightly argued positive definition of what right Christian belief is. So in a sense, uh, orthodoxy as a positive set of beliefs, that is a product of the new world that comes into being after Constantine's conversion. And I think what consign conversion do, does for Christianity is make it possible for people to meet together and also then gives it a new uh, decision-making body, which is the ecumenical council. So all the sort of great statements of defined faith about the trinity that emerged in the late Roman period, these all emerge at the discussions and via the validation of uh, ecumenical councils. Nicaea and Constantinople, um, then Chalcedon, and obviously um, second Constantinople in the sixth century. Um, And Christianity had not had a decision-making body to make those kind of unified decisions before. Um, And this is where imperial authority is important, because only an emperor can call ecumenical councils. um, And when we start to get more detailed evidence as we do, from um, the fifth century onwards, about how these councils are run, then you know emper- uh, emperors are open to influence from bishops. Bishops are absent, uh, and theologians are putting their oar in the whole time. But uh, emperors don't call a council until they think they've got um, a clear idea of what the answer is going to be. There's too much at stake. It's like holding a big um, international forum these days. You don't do that. Uh, unless you think you've know, you got the answer that you uh, want to get through and that it will get through. Uh, Otherwise, too much face is lost. So uh, not only do emperors call councils, but they are actually... um, The imperial court is the centre of all the jockeying for position that uh, precedes the calling of a council um, and the formulation of the answer that is going to be pushed through the council, because most of the time councils know what answer they're going to give. And actually then imperial authorities also used the structures of the Roman state to enforce the decisions that the councils make. So um, I I don't mean it to be reductive. I'm simply observing that uh, the the incorporation of Christianity uh, into the structures of the Roman state gives it an entirely new authority structure, and an authority structure with much greater uh, centralized teeth, as it were, and clearly changes the nature of the kind of decisions that uh, Christian leaders are able to make, and they are making them through the imperial office and enforcing them through the imperial office. So I don't know, is that reductive? Uh,
0: Whatever. Would it be true to say that your narrative tends to endow agency only to elites? And was this more a um, matter of adhering to that idea, or actually an aspect of lack of evidence for um, the ninety percent of the population who were peasants or land? I, I, you're
1: absolutely right about the lack of uh, evidence. Um, We simply don't know, uh, for the most part, about how and why non-elite populations pick up christianity uh, particularly in the early medieval period the the whole um, organized project by early medieval churchmen to um, spread christianity into the countryside uh, it would have happened sometime but in in practice it tends to be a largely a post-roman project in the west um, and you can see the initiatives that that they take those are well documented but the how and why of the reception of those uh, initiatives is um, not clear to us Um, so it's methodologically very difficult to get into that process Um, I hope I haven't ruled the sense of agency uh, out I'm just not able to document it um, with any stimulus that's applied Um, you always have as a, you know, to any group, the group always has a range of available responses to it um, that it can make to that stimulus, more and less negative, of course, uh, depending on um, uh, how it views those stimuli. Uh, What I've tried to do, uh, and again, you know, there is a a limit to the, the evidence base available, you can tell from the intensely limited Christian infrastructure that it's possible to put in place uh, before the sort of last century or so of the first millennium, uh, you know, very few churches in the countryside. Um, the the classic one that's always quoted uh, is that peasants lived on average six miles from a church in It's Gregory of Tours Diocese in 6th century Francia. Well, if they're six miles from a church on average, that means it's 12 miles to go there and back. And that means they're hardly ever going because you are not walking 12 miles on your day off to go to church. Uh, Likewise, we know that there's not much in the way of uh, educational infrastructure for training priests or books for them to be using in churches or whatever. So the amount of Christianity that's being applied or being made available, as it were, in the countryside is pretty limited. And I've tried to suggest that agency is there, even if we can't document it in its entirety, um, by the fact that almost certainly, and there's plenty of evidence to support that, what people are doing is bolting on uh, some elements of this Christian structure they're being offered in such a limited way um, onto whatever else They believe whatever else their um, beliefs, their existing belief structures, lead them to think about the cosmos and how the world uh, interacts with greater divine powers. So you have to come at it sideways. Uh, I certainly didn't mean to think that non elites uh, just have things done to them. It's just very difficult, actually, to document exactly how they would respond.
0: On page 105, you compare Christianity for the post-Roman period, I suppose the particular period after 800, uh, to quote, one party state model that operated in the old Soviet bloc, unquote, with, uh, as you put it, quote, the vast majority choosing to join the party, unquote. Now, in fact, it's not, from my knowledge of such matters, I don't think in any communist states, Or for that matter the current uh, Chinese communist uh, state, Uh, was it the case that the vast majority of the population joined the party? Um, In in view of that fact, is your analogy rather misplaced? Um, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. You don't get the choice to join the
1: party, you have to join in the party's structures uh, but only about 10% of the population get active party membership. Uh, nonetheless, the lives of everyone else is, uh, is certainly shaped by it. So I don't think the analogy is completely misplaced. I, I'm obviously, uh, you know, uh, poking a stick into the wasp's nest. Uh, but the point is, um, on page 105, I'm talking about the, the late Roman world. Um, if you wanted to succeed... Uh, if you're and, and we're talking about elite contexts uh, in this uh, at this point, if you wanted to succeed in the Roman world, you had to have the right connections in Roman public life, uh, either the right job or you know the right chains of socio-political connection to get you uh, the right uh, tax settlement that you want, or get your law cases fixed in the way that you wanted, get your children the jobs that you wanted. Uh, these kind of matters, um, and uh, certainly from the 390s onwards, uh, if you were not a declared Christian, uh, your capacity to do this was legally hampered, um so uh, if we're thinking about the analogy with the Soviet state, you know, so about 10% of the population joined the party. The elite of the Roman world is 5 or 6%. We are talking about um, analogous numbers. Everyone else has their life shaped by it to a lesser degree. But positive party membership um, in the Soviet system is, I think, equivalent to operating in the elite public life of the late Roman state. And the numbers are not completely different. And certainly the need... Uh, The requirement on you to, at least in public, uh, go along with the uh, declared uh, cultural stance of the current regime, um, that is undeniable in the Roman context. So, you know, all analogies are approximate. Um, I'm in part deliberately uh, teasing, uh, but I don't think it's a million miles off. No, not at all.
0: Would it be true to say that for you, the Roman and post-Roman states were ultra important to the spread of Christianity? Uh,
1: Yes, that is true. And that is
0: certainly what
1: I think. I don't think that Christianity was destined for uh, to become sort of mass dominant cultural structure before it enters into this very interesting and mutually transformative relationship with um, the Roman imperial structure, and by dint of having done that, then with the post-Roman um, imperial structures of the West. Um, I think, you know, in one, one way this is very easy to document in the sense that the entirety of the Roman world uh, goes through this kind of Christianizing process in the, in the late Roman, late antique period, Um, But uh, one part of that Roman world is then subsumed into the Islamic world. And in that part of the Roman Empire, Islam uh, uh, overtakes Christianity as the dominant cultural form. And uh, elite conversion to Islam follows very quickly for the same kind of reasons, Um, You know, the Islamic world is also a one party state uh, of a kind of the same kind of using the same kind of rough analogy um, to succeed in which it is better to be to have uh, a Muslim declaration of faith. Um, People do that. And eventually, of course, Islam becomes the dominant mass religion uh, in those areas. And the areas we're talking about are uh, Syria, North Africa, uh, Palestine, Egypt, bits of Asia Minor. These were these are the sort of beating heartlands of early Christianity, um, and Christianity does get replaced there. So, uh, as it were, the re- the reverse case uh, of where um, a state structure is does not remain permanently Christian. Uh, immediately, I think does enough to make us think that we should be thinking in terms of what is the relationship between Christianity and these state structures, and to think about how that advanced Christianity.
0: Is there a timeline which is empirically based on elite conversions to Islam in the area of the Near East? Um, there
1: is uh, the same kind of qualitative evidence, Um for Islamic conversion as there is for conversion to Christianity uh, amongst the pagan elites of the late Roman Empire Um, you get some good evidence from Egyptian papyri and then you've got the the evidence that the the type of evidence being used is uh, basically the adoption of Arabic names within converting families you get biographical dictionaries are a huge uh, element of of medieval uh, Islamic culture. And uh, there is, I think, a slight problem with that in the sense that um, where we've got a bit more evidence, the adoption of Arabic language can come a generation or so before the adoption of uh, an Islamic religious identity. But yeah, you know, uh, that's sort of a quibble uh, that puts you within the kind of right quarter, half century mark. So, um, you know, you don't have the the full sign-up sheet of when everyone converted to Islam. And there's no, Islam doesn't have uh, a a sort of conversion literature in the way that Christianity does, uh, but there's uh, pretty good evidence, actually, of of more or less to within uh, 25 or 50 years of when bulk of elite conversion is happening, yeah.
0: Is not your view that iconoclasm was a direct result of uh, Byzantium's military defeats a bit too post-hoc to be believable? Well, I struggled with that one. Um,
1: uh, In the sense that I can only observe what the evidence tells me. Um, The question is really... At what level is the dispute of iconoclasm operating? Um, is this a, a, a sort of society-level crisis? or Is it a, a political-level crisis? And the, the great oddity about iconoclasm, both first and second iconoclasm, is how little dispute it actually generates. Uh, you know, when you go in and out of periods of iconoclasm, basically you just sack the, the sitting patriarch of Constantinople and everybody else signs up to the new order, whether it's an iconoclast order uh, at the beginning or uh, an iconodule anti-iconoclast order at the end. Uh, so we, you the transitions are incredibly unproblematic. There's also, uh, apart from protests involving a few monks, there's no record of mass popular unrest in response to these moves, um, as there certainly would be now, you know, if the orthodox world suddenly started saying, you know, icons are idols and uh, they uh, are a disaster, religiously disastrous and illegitimate uh, thing to be using in your worship, there would be a huge outcry. There's, there's just no evidence of that. Um, and I suspect that that what we're, we're really seeing is that this um, transfer of an intense Christian allegiance to the mass of the population hasn't yet taken hold. I mean, we are in the sort of um, early 8th century, um, and if we look at the rest of the Christian world, if we look at the sort of Latin West, the evidence for intense mass popular engagement with Christianity is all from about the year 1000 onwards, not as early as the 8th century. So my suspicion is that um, the use of icons in a liturgical contexts is primarily uh, a monastic phenomenon still in the in 8th century um, Byzantine contexts, and that would make sense where most of the dispute about Iconoclasm relates to monks and their uh, certain monasteries and their response to it. Um, The the mass of the population has not yet incorporated icons into the into its intense forms of or less intense forms of Christian religious observance. Had it done so, there'd just been much more fuss.
0: At some point in the book, you seem you characterize Byzantium as a regional or second tier power. Post 640 AD is this not um, something of an exaggeration? I I don't think so. I, it's
1: it's something I've said before, um, uh, but I'm not the only person to say it, um, and some people do get kind of uppity about that. But I don't think it is actually because if you think about what the rise of Islam does to um, the eastern half of the Roman imperial system, uh, it removes um, three of its richest territories in uh, the Near East, um, Egypt and North Africa, and it turns one of its other richest areas, which is coastal Asia Minor, you know, the, the home of all those ancient Greek cities from the 1st millennium BC onwards, turns that into a battleground. And the archaeology is quite clear that the great cities that used to exist, like Sardis and Ephesus and Aphrodisias, uh, become uh, Byzantine forts at best with a few small villages around them. So the, the sort of vibrant uh, society and economy of that uh Coastal zone uh, of what's now Mediterranean Turkey uh, is deeply disrupted uh, by conflict with the Islamic world. Uh, and if you can, and you can, I mean, I'm by no means the first to do this, it's been done from the 90s, 80s onwards. If you look at the sort of um, Ottoman Empire, which has something like the same shape, um, and look at its tax records, you can see that the loss of the Near East of most of coastal Asia Minor of Egypt and North Africa would have amounted to the loss of something like three quarters, between two thirds and three quarters of the revenue flows of Constantinople. And in fact, you'd only have to look at the map. This is only using the Ottoman tax records as any kind of you know, icing on the cake, though. Uh, simple consideration of uh, geography and agricultural production makes the point by itself. And if a state loses between two-thirds and three-quarters of its revenue, it becomes a different kind of state. That also shows up in the kinds of things that East Roman emperors are able to do, and in particular in their relations with the Islamic superpower that's emerged on their doorstep. Um, And in subsequent eras, it is quite straightforwardly the case That is, that Byzantium is able to expand only when the Islamic world uh, is in a period of um, disunity or fragmentation. And as soon as any sizable chunk of the Islamic world is put back together as a unity uh, in the vicinity of Byzantium, then uh, Byzantium declines again. So, no, I don't think it is at all. Uh, I I think it's just, uh, I think... Byzantium from 700 onwards, if you like, is as much a successor state to the Roman imperial system as the Franks or Visigoths in the West.
0: Uh, would it be true to say that unlike, uh, perhaps, uh, Chris Wickham, you seem to suggest great continuity in elites after, say, 410 AD. Why so? Um, sorry, can
1: I just ask him in, in what context? Where are you in...? In the in the Roman
0: West, sorry. Yes, from not... the Roman West.
1: Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I think I do. I mean, if you look, at the... you I think you posit a different type of. How should I put it? A different type of um, elites in terms of cultural style. Yes. More militarized, as opposed to the uh, elite elite style of the late Roman Empire, which was. Very, for lack of a better expression, intellectually oriented or culturally oriented in terms of having the proper grammatical understanding of the Latin they were speaking, which was definitely not the case post uh, four hundred and ten, or if you like, four hundred and seventy-six A.D.
1: Yeah, no, sure. I I see what I see what you're asking me. Sorry, I was just uh, being a bit slow on the uptake. Um, yeah. Um, the, the late Roman elite is civilian and bureaucratic. Fundamentally, uh, their career structures uh, operate around the imperial bureaucracy, which is and uh, in part their local, regional, uh, provincial social life. Um, and to flourish in that world, they need a very particular cultural formation, um, which involves uh, high-end positive literacy—not just reading and not just reading, but writing as well um what we see uh, as the roman system unravels is across much uh, in, in the western half of the mediterranean is across much of the western mediterranean the elites remain in place it's not i think true in britain and not true in northeastern gaul where the archaeological evidence suggests much greater um disruption but um you know that still leaves central southern gaul spain north africa italy where the sitting landed elite uh are more or less there but yes absolutely their lifestyles change dramatically the uh successor states uh, that emerge certainly by the mid-sixth century i mean this is a process it's not an event that the the successor states which emerge um are not mini copies of the roman empire they don't do large-scale taxation to support professional armies. They demand military service from their constituent landowning elites, and the surviving members uh, of the old Roman elite, you know, grandsons, great-grandsons, etc., etc., who rapidly intermarry with any incoming Franks or Visigoths or whatever as well. So it's a, a real cultural melding that goes on. Um, the main thing that the state requires of them is personal military service, and the kind of high-end literacy that Uh, was necessary for elite success in late Roman context becomes much less necessary. Um, And as any good parent knows, you spend on your children what you need to spend on them to give them the best chance in life. Um, And you don't spend other things. So uh, when uh, their career structures are not revolving around uh, high-end competency in classical literature, uh, you don't provide that. You provide them with the other things that they now need to fit them for their life as um, military gentry and aristocracy in the post-Roman world, so you do get a major cultural change. Yes.
0: What do you attribute the um, What do you attribute the growth in the, in terms of your narrative of uh, an agency to the uh, Pope in Rome, the Papal States? Become through, I believe it's the case that in the book it comes rather late in the narrative or basically sometime in the mid to late 11th century
1: yes it, it's such an interesting process um and when i first, first started working on this it's it's probably the the thing i least expected to be honest um i knew the pope was sort of significant in the late roman period and the early middle ages um and rome is uh, you know rome is one of the oldest christian um communities of them all the in the late roman period the the bishop of rome is one of the five patriarchs um who are defined as those in charge of communities that were founded by one of the apostles um but uh, it, it was surprisingly late where you actually find um a new recognized uh Authority structure for Latin Christendom centered on Rome actually emerging. And I think most surprising of all, because um, I'd gotten, I was pretty clear that it was quite late, uh, was the actual process. And the process, I think, is a very interesting one. Uh, and I think it basically works this way that in the time of Charlemagne, um, the Latin Christian world is still small enough that Charlemagne is basically running all of it. And the same kind of religious authority that Charlemagne's Roman imperial peers had exercised uh, is exercised by him. And that does give a kind of unity to the Latin Christian West. But if you move the dial on a couple of hundred years beyond that, then two major things have happened. Um, The amount of conversion in Northern and Central Central Eastern Europe means that Latin Christendom is much, much larger, uh, and that therefore there is no single ruler, not even the Holy Roman Emperor, who runs enough of it to provide any kind of centralized leadership. Um, so, you know, uh, all the bishops of France will not go to a council called by the Holy Roman Emperor. Whereas pretty much every bishop used to go to councils called by Charlemagne. So you can't get that kind of unified decision making structure because there is no uh, emperor or king who is powerful enough by the 11th century um, to, to uh, exor- exercise enough authority to pull everyone into uh, single meetings uh, and to make them work together. So you've got that brute fact on the one hand, but then on the other hand, the 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 kind of revamping of the church that happens in the carolingian period creates uh, a new class of educated cleric both in the monasteries and in the cathedrals who do think of themselves uh, as belonging to a unit and want to belong to a unit And the thing that's, I think, really exciting and interesting about the emergence of papal authority is that it is northern European churchmen coming to Rome who transform Rome into that dominant authority. So a pope like Leo IX, who's actually uh, a a bishop from um, northern Europe in origin, he wants Rome to exercise the kind of unifying authority that no king or emperor can do anymore, because Western Christendom has become so big, uh, and he is willing to think of and put start to put into practice, again it's a process, not an event, but he certainly begins it, um, to put into practice the kind of changes that will actually make it possible for Rome to function as a religious authority uh, centre. this much enlarged latin western christendom and this process slowly unfolds between um well about 1050 and 1200 by by 1200 um popes have replaced uh emperors and kings as the dominant religious authority and the kind of powers that emperors used to exercise over the church in the late roman period have now uh been taken over by the papacy Uh, but it's not, as it were, a coup organised from Rome. It's actually a a broader tranche of uh, latin educated Latin clerks who want this to happen, because it needs to happen uh, if the church is to have uh, a centralised authority structure uh, to set standards, um, to validate new belief structures, uh, then it can't be based either on emperors or kings. It has to be based somewhere else, and Rome is the only viable candidate, and they make it happen. I think it's a really extraordinary story.
0: To conclude, what do you overall attribute to, to what factors do you attribute the success of Christianity uh, at the end of your book, or by um, the end of your book, I should say? Sure. Uh, I think,
1: I suppose I, I, I would, if pressed, I would look at two things. Um, first of all, there is the kind of um, essential positivity of the message uh, that, you know, they're all types of, they're all elements of human life which will be miserable. Um, And I don't think there's anyone whose life is so blessed that they don't go through some of these kind of dark patches at some point in their existence. Well, the fact of mortality um, means that if you love anybody, um, there will be a time uh, when they pass and when you're faced with these kind of uh, incredibly black moments. And Christianity's message is one of hope. Uh, in the face of those kind of inescapable moments of blackness. So I I think the positivity of the Christian message um, is, of course, uh, right at the heart of the story. Uh, And of course, there's a central continuity to that. So one half of the answer is that the continuity there um, and the fact that that message speaks, I think, so uh, cogently to the realities of human existence at every level. The other thing that uh, I would emphasize uh, and the other thing uh, that's at the heart of the book is Christianity's capacity to change and to adapt um, at every level in terms of the detail of its message, in terms of its educational structures, in terms of its uh, delivery mechanisms, how it transmits its mechanisms, uh, transmits its beliefs, uh, and it wins buy-in to them. its capacity to adapt and change over time. And, uh, and I do think uh, this is, I suppose, the, the central one of the central themes of the book is the extent to which Christianity changes, but it changes in direct response to the needs uh, that its uh, leaderships and its representatives perceive around them as they seek to establish uh, it, its messages more strongly in different populations. They respond to those needs uh, creatively. Um, uh, and uh, in, in some ways it's that capacity to adapt, I think, which makes Christianity so successful.
0: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Heather, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Petillo, thank-list New Books and History at Podcast Channel New Books Network. Thank you very much, Professor Heather. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.